Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets Pod this Sunday, April 14th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at MetsMarizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia. And you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Hope everybody's doing well. A little earlier podcast uh, with the Sunday Night Baseball Mets Braves, one of the first of, I think, a few this year. I didn't look up the schedule. But uh, when the podcast comes on after the uh, the games on Sunday, that's easy. When there's the Sunday night baseball, I don't know if you guys want to stay up. I don't want to stay up till midnight to do a podcast. Of course, when the season becomes a little bit more important or a little bit more uh, integral, these games to uh, uh, I guess the pennant race, maybe we'll do some things differently. Maybe we'll do them going out on a Monday morning. But hey, it's April. Is there really any must wins? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that to a group of Mets fans out there. Uh, I don't think this <laughs> a must win right now, but anyway, uh, be that as it may, we're coming to you before the Sunday night baseball game, and I thought it'd be a, a, a great night, great day, we're doing this earlier in the day, to uh, have some fun, and I know we've been doing a lot of uh, authors on about the 69 Mets books coming out, the celebration, but today we're actually going to have a guest on that has nothing to do with the Mets in a little bit. It's uh, Jonathan Knight. He's an author. He's from Cleveland, or the Ohio, I should say. And he wrote a book, uh, and I read it last year. It was actually uh, uh, about a year ago around this time I read it, but it was called Just a Bit Inside, A Look at the Making of Major League. And you guys know the movie. It's been 30 years, and that's what this year's all about, celebrating 30 years with what really became an iconic film with uh, iconic actors like Tom Berenger, Charlie Sheen, I think that was post. That was definitely post Wall Street. Uh, Corbin Burnson, uh, you know, Renee Russo. There's just so many. I mean, for a, a, what really is at the beginning a corny movie when you think about it, 
they have so many great actors and uh you know really basic and and it's nineteen eighties now remember not not now with all the technology we have, but basic scenes, basic technology into the movie uh that's a fun movie it, it may be my favorite it's it's close I love for the love of the game I know that that's more of a a love story, but that gives you kind of the baseball component the female component I think that's always a great mix with your significant other there. If you want to watch a baseball movie, of course, there's Fields of, Field of Dreams, and I'm probably missing so many others there that you guys like, uh, Bull Durham, uh, what have you. So uh, Major League is probably up there. Is it my favorite? I mean, I never get tired of watching it. I don't mind Major League 2, uh, but uh, Major League 3 is horrible. I mean, we know that. Uh, anyway, uh, Jonathan Knight, author of the book Just a Bit Inside, The Making of Major League, will join me in just a little bit. We'll get a chance to uh, look at the movie 30 years after talk about his book, which was really good, and I'll tell you why it was good. It was good because you get the chance to see how a film is made, and I'm not a, a movie buff guy, and I'm not a guy that has you know, gone to school for this stuff or really studied it or even really paid a lot of attention to how movies are made, but when you see what goes into and how hard it was to make this movie back then and all the challenges, Jonathan will get into that, uh, you'll really appreciate uh, the outcome here. And, uh, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. So Jonathan Knight will be joining us. So anyway, before we get to uh, let our hair down and, and have some fun here early in this baseball season, let's see where this uh, current group of Mets is at. So first place, uh, National League East, 9-5 uh, and five record. And uh, I see a lot of screams today after what was a predictably bad outing by Jason Vargas. I never felt, looking at the schedule this week, looking at the Mets going into Atlanta, watching how plucky Atlanta could be the first couple of games. I didn't feel Saturday was a game that was winnable with Vargas. Uh, I didn't think he'd pitch this poorly. Uh, I did feel he'd get uh, hit around pretty good, but the hope is that you stay in the ball game. He gives you five innings, maybe three, four runs. Perfect world, six innings, three runs, and away you go. He lasted uh, less than an inning. He was awful. Corey Oswalt, who was brought up really for these situations, to help keep the Mets in the ball game uh, on, on essentially Vargas days or any day where the starters having a bad outing, but mainly these would be, you would think, for Vargas days, was not much better. And, and though the Mets, again, scored six or more runs for the seventh straight time, they're four and three in those games, they, they fall 11-7 to the Braves. So where are we at with this team? And, and as the season, and it's very young, and that's where I have to caution Mets fans because I see a lot of declarations being made about this team is just a starting pitcher away from winning the NL East. That's not true. I don't believe that. I know that this Mets team, as currently constituted, without any changes, is just as good as the Nats. We'll see what they, you know, I, I believe they're just as good as the Phillies, but we'll see the Phillies this week. I definitely think they're as good, probably better than the Braves, and, and the Marlins are the Marlins, so uh, I'm not ready to say that. They're just as good as anybody else, but where are we at here as we view this team? Where are the Mets at? Where are we at as we view this team? And I knew the offense was better. And I kept saying to you guys all off season, the offense is better. But all you need to do is score four and a half runs a game. I mean, you put up a crooked number. The pitching's that good. The hope is that with Diaz as the closer and with a better bridge that you could win one, two-run games. The offense is a lot better than just slightly better. And this is without Cespedes. This is without Lowry. And this is without Frazier. It's deep. Even on the days like yesterday where you have some guys sitting down or Friday when you sit at Pete Alonso, yesterday or Robinson Cano, you don't feel like there's automatic outs. Lagaris has made improvements. I think Darno is a backup catcher. I think you're going to see a difference in him with his career because I think that's what he's been all along. I think he's been miscast. Maybe he'll even stay a little healthier. Uh, so I maybe at this point, I kept saying, well, you know, if Alonzo could give them what Cespedes would give them right-handed bat, and I was looking at maybe 20, 25 home runs, you know, 250 to 270 batting average. I mean, that would be a disappointment if he didn't produce that right now. Well, that would be a disappointment. Now, we got to temper our enthusiasm here because as he gets around the league a second time, Alonzo's going to have his, his big league moments. But right now, Alonzo's giving you everything you would have expected a Cespedes to give you or, or a healthy David Wright. So you're really not missing Cespedes right now. Uh, and the good part about this offense is that since he came on board in late 2015, I feel like the Mets offense has been predicated by Cespedes being in it. It's almost like an NBA team where they need their, their superstar. And a baseball team and an offense, as important as that hub, as that Piazza or Strawberry or right in his prime are to those offenses, 
The reason offenses with those guys are good is because you're able to build around them with different types of players and players complementary that could be better because of the hub. And the Mets probably didn't have that. They had a lot of all-or-nothing hitters that worked the count, did get on base, but were very susceptible to long blackouts or brownouts, whatever you want to call it. And sure enough, that's what you got over the last two or three years, even the season they made the playoffs in 2016. And, and, and now it looks like they can score in different ways. If you watched, and I was trying to find the clip, the audio clip of it, and I haven't yet found it, but if you watched Jeff McNeil on with Gelbs before the game yesterday, he basically said, look, I know I'm good. We know we're good offensively. Uh, we're just going to go out and continue to do this. And that's a confidence that you haven't seen. Well, and that's the kind of players I think you have on this roster right now where they – it's not just going out there and going about their business. That's important. Those are professionals. The Mets have had those for a number of years, uh, and they had those in 2015 as well when they went to the World Series. But they have guys here that do that but know they're good and expect to win. And that – you know, has been lost, especially in 17 with the injuries, especially last year when things got tough. The month of June, a perfect example. And if this offense can lead the way and do that, uh, th something really special could happen around here. Again, very, very early. Now, bring it over to the, uh, the pitching staff. Out of the games that they've lost during the streak of six or more runs, two of them are outliers. That's the DeGrom and Wheeler. I was a little worried because Wheeler seemed to have regressed during his, uh, his national start. It looks like he picked up on some uh, mechanical things in terms of speed to the plate. That's good to see him picking that up on the video. Uh, DeGrom, I mean, even if he has a bad adding to that, I don't, I don't want to hear uh, Mets fans panic. I said this to you guys. Uh, I said this all along. He, he, he cannot he, – he can't really give you anything this year, and if he does, that's incredible. That won't be a disappointment when you look at it in a vacuum because if he goes at a 2.50 ERA, which is outstanding – that's almost a run worse than, than last year. You're not going to see last year. This is 85 good, and, and, and for a variety of other reasons, Gooden was disappointing, but DeGrom is going to be like the 85 Gooden and 86 and 87 and 88. You're always going to wonder, maybe not to that extreme, well, what's wrong? And I, I don't want to hear it because I think that's going to be coming down the pike because even if he goes six innings, two runs, or six innings, three runs, and they win you know, eight to three, well, DeGrom wasn't really that dominant. Well, maybe he was a little over-dominant last year. So the rotation, it, it, you know, outside of Vargas is fine. My concerns right now is, one, the fifth spot, because Oswald and Vargas are right now your options. And if you pull a Lugo or a Gazelman out of the pen, and right now Gazelman's not impressing me out of the pen, so maybe as a starter he'd be more valuable giving you six innings, three runs, because you, you would hope that he could do that. Uh, I don't know if you're really losing a lot on the bullpen by pulling Gazelman out. I think you lose a lot by pulling Lugo out. So I, I, that's how I would go if you pull from Gazelman, uh, from that Gazelman-Lugo tandem. The fifth spot's a concern, uh, and the bullpen to me is a concern, and I'll get to them second, because this ties into what's going to be the talk until these two guys sign. That's Craig Kimbrell and Dallas Keuchel. And I'll even throw Gio Gonzalez, who has an opt-out with the Yankees coming up. Any of All three of those guys would be, and I've said this, would be viable options and, and to improve this club. And... It's possible that this scenario, the fifth spot, and how the bullpen performs will probably be the undoing this year. We'll see. It's, again, very, very early. I keep saying that because I feel like we treat baseball like football. You know, 14 games is nothing in the scope of 162-game season. Every bad team is going to go at some point, maybe 9-5 and five in a stretch of some sorts. Dallas Keuchel has been... Very league average over the last couple of years. He, he won the Cy Young in 2015. He was really good. And I was doing some research, and I'm not saying he's not better than Oswald and Vargas. He is. But the real decision you have to make is, one, are you going to go multi-years with him? Because I, I wouldn't. Any of these guys, whether it be Kimbrell or, or Keuchel, you want to sign them for this year. And River Avenue Blues, a Yankees website, because obviously the Yankees are looking at maybe getting pitching now that Severino's going to be out for a while and what have you broke down some of his, his strikeout rate, which you don't have to do a complicated breakdown to see that it's been down from his Cy Young season, down about two strikeouts per game, which is usually the first indicator that there's a decrease or a decline in stuff or that the league is catching up to him. Uh, and then the contact rate, because Keuchel's a, a touch-and-feel guy, or not so much like Vargas, but a guy that relies on 
getting hitters to chase outside the zone. His con- hard, hot, hard hit contact rate is up, and they're not swinging uh, hitters at his stuff outside the zone. So you wonder, the deception's not there. What is that going to lead to? Is that going to lead to a more hittable pitcher? And it, with an investment, and he's looking for about what he would get with the qualifying offer, probably north of that for one year, you're maybe investing what you have left in terms of, of and I know you're going to hate hearing this, in terms of available resources and payroll to to this team as a pennant winner. And you might need another bullpen arm. I think you're going to need another bullpen arm. I don't think there's any two ways around it before July 31st. Maybe it comes from Syracuse, maybe one of the young uh, arms in Syracuse, a Seawold, a Hanold. I don't know if those guys are viable options. But maybe they would have made the team from the beginning. But you're going to need another bullpen arm and probably a veteran one. And maybe you could go out and see what bad teams have really good setup men or closers, and you're looking to dump. They're looking to dump those guys at the uh, the deadline or before them. And with the deadline being a hard deadline now, you know, they'll be interesting how that transpires into competition for players. So there's a lot of variables as the season goes on. Um, so if you spend it on Keichel, you better be sure that Keichel's the guy. Now, I would sit back. This is, you know, Mets fans, oh, i got to go and get Keichel. Well, sit back here. You keep in contact. You, it's not like they're, they're going to just call the agent. They're not been in contact. They know what's going on. Brody Van Wagenen knows what the, what's on the hopper out there. He's connected. There's no doubt about it. You got to see what's going to happen with Gio Gonzalez and the Yankees because Gio Gonzalez's numbers are very similar over the last couple of years. And I know that there are many people who have questioned both of these pitchers' stuff, but they're veterans. And you're looking for a fifth starter now. Maybe a guy with a four or who could do give you a number four quality. Uh, you know, Mats has shown that maybe he's, he's turning the corner. And both of these guys could potentially give you top of the rotation performances, which Vargas cannot on a given night. Neither can Oswald. Vargas and Oswald, at best case, are league minimum. That's what you get on a good night, maybe slightly above. Most cases, you're going to get disappointing outings. Both of the, you know, Keiko's going to cost you a draft pick, as will Craig Kimbrell. And I'll get to Kimbrell in a minute. And the bullpen in a minute. So you really need to be right. And I I think you have to just take a step back. And I know it's going to be painful every five days. And it's going to maybe be ugly in the short term. But this is a long season. Let this play out. This is you don't want to make it play out too long, but I don't think April's uh, or this game on a Saturday night in Atlanta is reason enough to just run and sign Keuchel tomorrow. I think it's reason enough to start really saying we need to fix this. And you have Keuchel, you have Gonzalez, and both are gonna are one is available and one may become available very quickly depending on what the Yankees do. My guess is the Yankees aren't stupid. They're gonna see some teams like the Braves and the Mets maybe needing uh, starting pitching help. And they're going to try to use that to get something out there. If Gonzalez be, is, an, is an option that they don't want to use in their rotation, which I'd be surprised that they don't even want to use him. And if they don't want to use him, then maybe there's more of a red flag. I know he had a bad outing, his first outing in AAA, and then he had a good outing. Um, there's been some questions about his stuff. So take a step back. Let's see what transpires. Let's see you know, what the Mets do with Vargas' next outing. Vargas is a guy that's going to struggle in environments like on the road against good-hitting teams like Atlanta, like St. Louis, like uh, Philadelphia. That those are the three teams they're facing on this road trip. These are the, you know, these are bad sample sizes. And another night against the Twins, everybody was getting clobbered, including Degrom. So I can't kill him on that. Now, as far as the bullpen, I'm actually more concerned about the bullpen than the fifth spot because I think a team could navigate one mediocre part in the rotation. You could cobble together league average at some point. I know that's not what you want. You want to get as good as you can. The bullpen to me is where the concern is, and I know what you're going to say is Kimbrell, who also will cost a draft pick between now and, and June, is out there. And that's correct, I, but Kimbrell was bad down the stretch. I said, look at those numbers in the back half of the year, especially in August and September. He had an ERA of 4.5. He was awful in the postseason. He's still, according to reports as, as recently as today, looking for you know three-year deals for $50 bucks. I don't know if I'd give that out. Because now you're investing in a guy that could be a really bad pitcher for you who's going to walk the ballpark. You'll strike out a ton of guys, walk the ballpark, but not be who you think you're getting. What bothers me about the current bullpen is that I don't really get a feel for the roles yet other than Diaz, who hasn't been unhittable but seems to have a feel of it, basically saying, hey, you know, it's that batting average on balls and play scenario. Most Other than a couple of hard-hit balls, those ground balls are going to find gloves eventually. And he made big pitches when he need to, needed to. Familia, to me, has looked uncomfortable from day one. He's slow on the mound. He's getting behind hitters. 
he doesn't look fluid. And I was worried about him because he had the blood clot a couple of years ago. Uh, he had some, uh, you know, shoulder issues last year. They had to, you know, it was barking him. They shut him down briefly. He was okay in Oakland. He struggles against good left-handed hitters now. You may have to really spot him against right parts of the lineup. He may have to be a seventh or eighth inning guy, depending on how the lineup is. And then you got to get Justin Wilson to kind of spot where it makes most sense. You're going to have to really not designate seven or eight there. And this is going to be Callaway's challenge, and I'll be looking for it. You may have to look at Wilson and Familia as, what is the better part of the lineup for those guys based on situational hitters, uh, lefty, righty, a variety of reasons other than just the stats, what kind of hitters they have coming up. They're not chasing familiar stuff anymore. They're trying to get him to elevate and come to them, which is when he's going to give up hard hit home runs like he did to Defoe, or he's going to walk hitters because they're not chasing, and then he's going to get himself into trouble. And he was lucky in Atlanta the other night because he got a couple of fortuitous calls with the strike zone. Uh, you know, Lugo seems to be getting back to where he meet, wants to be, and I'm not really worried about him yet. I do worry with the usage. I mean, the guy does have a partially torn UCL, so eventually you got to think that that's going to have to be addressed. The Mets are going to need a bullpen arm, and I don't know if Craig Kimball's the guy now. On a one-year deal, fine. But here's the thing. If you sign either or both of these guys right now, you're going to lose a draft pick. And believe me, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with losing international slot money and draft picks because if you really feel, and I feel this team can compete and win and do something special here this year, forget about the draft picks. There's more of those where they came from. A good organization is able to find guys in later rounds. It's not just about the second round or the first round. This isn't the NBA or the NFL. Uh, but if you're not getting a significant upgrade right now and if there's time to play, you also don't, don't want to just throw assets away. When it's said and done, you're not going to get both. If you're if there really is a serious interest of the Mets signing a, a, one of those guys, they're going to only take one. I don't even think it's just money. I think from a standpoint of resources, they don't want to deplete the cupboard. And they probably right now would go more for the starter than the reliever because I think a guy will be available that's at this point just as good as Kimbrel because I am not high on Kimbrel at all. I'm really not. And and I, and I that he, he lost me in the postseason last year because he was not reliable. The, the Red Sox were actually lucky to navigate that postseason with how bad he was. And he was a, a, about three or four feet away from, from blowing that Yankee series, which would have been a horrible loss. And, and that would have changed everybody's mind on Kimbrel if Gary Sanchez's ball cleared the fence. So a couple of things on that. Yes, I'm worried about the bullpen. Let's take a step back here. Let's see what goes on. Yes, I'm worried about the fifth spot. I'm actually a little worried. None of the pitchers have really hit their stride yet. But I, but like Mickey Calloway told Mike Francesa earlier this week, they expect these guys to pitch well, and the fact that their offense is doing well, that's the part that they really are happy about, and that's the part they wanted to see. They're not worried about the starting pitching. That's what Calloway said. And it didn't sound like Calloway's worried about the bullpen. He really believes these guys will come around. I see some concerning things, especially with Familia. And it's the process. He just doesn't look comfortable out there. And if Familia's bad, and now you got to move Wilson into the eighth inning or Lugo, now you got Lugo, Wilson, Diaz, you may be two arms short in the bullpen. Now it makes it even harder for you to go out and justify spending $17, $18, 19000000 million, even for one year, on Keiko when you may need those resources to get yourself a, a reliever later in, the, uh, you know, later in the season. So take a step back. A lot to be excited about. Pete Alonzo, the offense, how confident that offense is. They believe they're good. They're diversified. And, yes, Pete Alonzo is a big part of that offense. But it's about the totality of that offense, how they keep coming at, at these teams. And, and they're able to mash middle relievers and bad middle relievers, which is something that bad middle relievers used to shut this team down so easily. That's where they'll become dangerous because no lead will be safe. Because out of the teams out there, not many have – three or four really good relievers. So if you can get the starter out, even when they're pitching well, and get to that middle innings before the uh, the, the closer like they did against the Nats, you'll probably win a, a, a many of those games. Good majority of those games. And you got to look at the season in 10-game, little tiny 10-game mini-seasons. Try to go 6-4, and four, no worse than 5-5. Five 6-4, and five. Six and four, no worse than 5-5, five and five, and all of a sudden you get yourself a 90-95 win team. And that's a team that, at the end of the year, should make the postseason – all you can do is control what you do. You can't control where the rest of the league goes. So, anyway, that's where we're at with the Mets. Sunday Night Baseball, Jacob DeGrom tonight trying to take three out of four in Atlanta. Let's uh, see where that goes. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, Jonathan Knight, author of the book Just a Bit Inside, 
the making of the Major League movie. We're going to let our hair down and take a break from the uh, 2019 baseball season and take a look at an iconic film 30 years later. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Harry Doyle here welcoming all of you to another season of Indians baseball. Here's a list of players we'll be inviting to camp. This guy here is dead. Cross him off then. We'd love for you to come to spring training for a shot at this year's club. By the way, you were with me last night. Who's this chick on top of me? We'd still like to take a look at you at our spring camp. Not sure I can make it by then. Who is that? Serrano. What's his religion? Voodoo. Say hey! Willie Mays Hayes here. Play like Mays, and I run like Hayes. How you doing? the hell league you've been playing in california penal don't you have any proven major league talent now i want to put together a team that'll help us relocate to miami you want us to lose we've been losing what i want is for us to finish dead last this year the cleveland indians have a multi-talented team the first offering, just a bit outside. They're masters of the sacrifice. He's looking to sacrifice a live chicken. One old chicken, just like you said. The double play. Excuse me. I have a much better body than she does. Thank you for me, she really does. And the pickoff. Every time we win, we peel a section. <laughs> Tom Berenger. Super Ernest Kurt Stuck. Use your imagination. Charlie Sheen. These things make me look ridiculous. Seeing's the most important thing, son. How big is that important? Corbin Burnson. And Bob Euchre. Haywood swings and crushes one towards South America. Major League. That ball wouldn't have been out of a lot of parks. Name one. Yellowstone. (laughs) (laughs) We're back, and joining us is author of the book, just a bit inside uh, the making of Major League, Jonathan Knight. You can check him out at his website, jnightrider.com. And and Jonathan, about a year ago, before the uh, 30th anniversary of this iconic movie, I had a chance to read the book, been meaning to get you on. And now that you have this 30th anniversary, I said, what am I waiting for? Welcome to the program, huh. and uh, how you doing? Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. Yeah, pretty uh, it, it, pretty amazing that it's been 30 years, I'll tell you. It's, it, it, there's been a lot of... Uh, a lot of attention uh, about the movie here in the last couple of weeks as that anniversary has approached, and it's uh, it's pretty amazing that it's been that long, and, and yet is still as as popular as ever, really. Yeah, and I was thinking as as I was going through some of my notes for the for the interview, and I said, okay, let's think about where it stands with other baseball movies, and most of which are pretty bad. You have um, Eight Men mm-hmm. Out, you have Field of Dreams. Uh, for the love of the game with Kevin Costner, I thought was always an underrated one. Even uh, former players I saw tweeting recently how realistic the baseball part of that is. You know, mm-hmm. Major League is up there. Uh, I don't know where Major League stands, but it's right up there. I mean, there's never a time on cable where, and even number two, which I know never really got a lot of love. When it's on, if I have time, I don't care if I've seen it a billion times. You just have to stop and watch it. I, I don't know if other people are like that, but that's how I am. I'm like, oh, let's watch this. Let's. Let's kill a half yeah. hour, even if you're at the, the end yeah. of the movie. Totally, and I think I I think that is that says that speaks a lot to not just with Major League, but with several of the other movies you mentioned there. I think it does speak to the craftsmanship that goes into not just the movie aspect or the storytelling aspect, but the baseball. I think that when you have a baseball movie, some of the some of the less memorable baseball movies that are out there, I think you can tell very quickly uh, how how little, how much, or how little attention went into either hiring actors who, who had baseball skills or at least putting them through some sort of training to, to make it look a little bit believable. So I think when, you, when you're when you watching, and not just baseball, any sports movie really, when you're watching a sports movie and the, and the sports are instantly unrealistic and you just don't believe that it's real at all, I think that's, that's hard to settle in for. And, and all those movies you just mentioned, I think, do a very nice job. Uh, of doing that, and that was something with Major League that, that David Ward, uh, the writer director, was 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 very uh, made sure that that everyone 
at least make it look plausible. And that was that was a key component to making the movie and to its lasting success, I think. And there's two parts about this movie, one about you writing the book, one about the, the cast. Uh, the, the It's an all-star cast. Maybe at the time they weren't all-stars, but we mm-hmm. go up and down. Tom Berenger, Charlie Sheen, Corbin Burnson, uh, Wesley Snipes, Rene Russo. Uh, I know this is 1989. I was even thinking about, you know, what other movie has like an all-star cast that at the time you may not have thought of all those guys as all-stars? It's Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, or what you come, I know that's not a baseball movie, but you go down that yeah. list and you're like, Wow, look at the, the the actors in this movie. But you were able to talk to many of these guys, not all of these guys. Uh, and they wanted to talk about this movie. Like that's not common. These are yeah. not your run of the mill actors that are out of the game here. Some of these are still, you know, they're all pretty big stars still, still to this day. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and something that I really when I when I started out, I was thinking the exact same thing that what you just said. That well, particularly for the for the for the stars who really use Major League as a launching pad at the very beginning of their careers. Primarily Wesley Snipes, Rene Russo, Dennis Haysbert, all were basically unknowns. This was their first movie in, in most of those cases. And obviously all went on to, to very nice careers and in some cases superstar careers in the years to come. And I just assumed starting out this project is that, well, okay, I, maybe I'll talk to some of these guys, but many of them have moved on to bigger and better things. They, they will not really look back at major league that fondly. That was early in their career. They, they want to talk about the, 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 the better, bigger, more prestigious projects that they, they did later on, but that is absolutely not the case. They love talking about major league. They really do look at it so fondly, almost as if it's, they're looking back at their first dance, something like that, that, that you look back at, at something early in your, in your life or in, in their career in this case, that, that really was meaningful. That that even now, when you look back, sure, it may have not been the, the fanciest thing you ever did, or the, or the even the thing that you're most proud of. But you always have a soft spot in your heart for that project, and that's absolutely the case for for all those up and comers at the time, and even for, as you said, the the the, the real headliners at the time, Berenger Sheen and and uh, Corbin Burnson. They they love talking about it as well. So it really does. It really hit home for all of those actors involved, and they love talking about that movie even today. And you got Charlie Sheen to write the forward. And, I mean, that's the interesting one. You would think with all the stuff that's gone on in his life and uh, obviously a lot of the news he's made, uh, he was accessible to you. And, and it seems like he, he really gave you a lot of time. He did. And he was just uh, – he was a true gentleman to me. I mean, super respectful of me and and the project. And there again, I think at the heart of it was that he just loves this movie. He loves talking about Major League. He loves talking about the character. It was – a very special time in his life. I mean, he, as you said, and as we know, he, he's had a, a roller coaster of a life. And, and even at, even in the late eighties there in his early twenties, he, he'd been through, <laughs> he'd been through the ringer a little bit, but he just loves talking about major league. And he mentions in the forward that in his career, and he, he's done some very memorable things. Uh, you know, he's in platoon, which won best picture a couple of years before he's in wall street with, with Michael Douglas. So he's, he's had some very big, very successful and, and very well-respected movies. And he, he says in the forward, he, he's been in, I think 60 something movies in his career. He's proud of six of them. And of those six major league is, is number one. He just loves major league more than platoon, more than wall street more than eight men out, more than any of the uh, more prestigious movies that he's done, uh, Major League is his favorite. So I think that was sort of the end, that you can, once you get him, and that's what everyone, as I was, you know, kind of lining it up and uh, waiting to talk to Charlie, everyone else I talked to along the way is like, boy, when, when you get him, you'll get him. Like, he will talk your ear off about Major League. He just, And that's exactly right. Like, we had to have a couple of different conversations about it because we just ran out of time on – uh, on the time that we had allotted and we needed to pick it up uh, later. He just loves talking about it, which was great. And then writing the forward, as you said, was just like a dream come true to have him step up and and uh, reflect uh, on that and, and put that into the forward, which was just great. And he was actually a guy who could play a little bit, uh, unlike some of the others. And I guess the rumor is that he took steroids for the role to, to, to pitch and, and what have you. But you know, that's him. Like, I, I, I guess some people think is that a stand-in, but he had some pretty good form there on the mound. He did. And he, you're right. He did. He played in high school. There, there's sort of an urban myth that, that had he not gone into acting, Charlie Sheen could have been a pro ball player. And that, yeah, I mean, there's some truth to it. He, he probably, he, he certainly could have 
played probably at the college level uh, or into the minors. I don't know that he had what it took size-wise or strength-wise to, to make it all the way. So I think there may be some, maybe a little, a little apocryphal there to say that he would have made it to the big leagues. But, but uh, yeah, he had played in high school and had been very good. Um, and there again, going back to what we, we started with at the beginning, that, that, that verisimilitude there of having a guy who was a, you know, an all-star pitcher at, at, at some competitive level uh, in your movie that shows. And, and one of the big contrasts that, that um, I think can be used in several ways, but particularly in this case, is when you compare Charlie Sheen in Major League to Tim Robbins in Bull Durham. I think there's a lot of similarities between Bull Durham and Major League, and there's a, there's a kind of a good-natured rivalry between the two movies that has developed over the last 30 years. But when you look at those two, you're sort of the centerpiece characters. They're Robbins and, and Charlie are, are both pitchers, sort of young phenom pitchers coming up through the ranks. And when you look at Tim Robbins and Bull Durham and you look at Charlie Sheen in Major League, I mean, Charlie looks like a pitcher. Tim Robbins does not. As much as I love him in that movie, as much as I love that movie, I mean, that that's just looks, he does not at all look like a flame-throwing young phenom uh, prospect pitcher that, that's going to get called up to the majors anytime soon. So I think that <laughs> Charlie's performance is even more respectable when you when you look at what the alternative might have been. Tim Robbins looks like Andy Dufresne pitching in the prison yard. That's what he looks like. And that's exactly right. That's exactly what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Knight, author of the book, just a bit inside the making of Major League 30th anniversary, and and I think there'll be a lot as the year goes on uh, made of this because I think this is still a movie that, at least in my opinion, is right up there at the top of baseball movies. But uh, Jonathan, one of the fun parts about this book is not just looking back at the movie, but looking at how it was born out of failure of another project. Um, it was, uh, it took a long time. And even when it was uh, greenlit and it was on, there was a lot of pain. I mean, this thing, it it almost didn't happen for a variety of reasons. And I, I guess today with technology, maybe it wouldn't have been as dicey, but, uh, it was even after everything, the actors are in play and all the tough part of, of coming together, there was so many challenges because of the time that this was made unions, bunch of stuff you outlined in the book. Yeah, there there were a lot of a lot of obstacles that that almost prevented this thing from getting made, and and one of the really interesting ones that that even now you kind of look back on it kind of scratches your head uh, is that when the 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 primary obstacle that, that David Ward ran into when he was shopping the movie around, it took him almost four years, about four years from the time he finished that script to the time that it actually went into production, which is a, a lifetime. I mean, that's a, that's a very long time for, for, a, for a movie, particularly a movie that turned out to be as successful as this one was to not get made or, or to, to have people turning it down. So that's, that's a long time. And the, the primary reason he kept hearing through this time was that people don't want to watch a baseball movie. This was in the mid eighties, right when cable television was sort of emerging and, and starting to broadcast live sports a lot more. And, and baseball was, was, was being broadcast a little bit more. And you started to see baseball a little more regularly than just the game of the week and, and the world series. Um, and the consensus in Hollywood at this time was, well, if people want to watch baseball, they're not going to go to a movie about baseball. They can just turn on the television and watch baseball. Which then and now, you know, David Warren is that's that's absurd. Like that doesn't make sense. Like this isn't like we're we're not filming a game and putting it on the screen. This is a story about a baseball team, and the baseball action is not going to be the kind of thing you would see in a normal game. So, but he just kept hearing it. That was just the consensus of Hollywood at the time, from studio to studio. That was that was the core belief was that that people don't want to pay money to see a baseball movie. And it and it ref, it's reflected in the times. If you really look from really from like the bad news bears in 1976 up to 1988, which 88 and 89 was really kind of a watershed moment for for baseball movies and sports movies. You had Bull Durham, Field of Dreams and Major League all come out within 9 months. And that kind of broke that string. And, and with the success of those three, that opened the floodgates. And then over the next five or 10 years, you saw a ton of baseball movies, sports movies in general, be made because now that glass ceiling had been broken. They're like, oh, OK, yes, people actually do want to watch baseball movies or sports movies. But that was the big obstacle. And then there were several, several other things along the way. You mentioned that uh, budget and, and money is always a... Uh, a common reason to, to shut things down or to say no in Hollywood. But another um, problem or potential problem that, that actually worked out but could have shut it down 
was uh, getting permission from Major League Baseball to make this movie uh, or to use the teams rather to use the Indians specifically, but then also the, all the other teams that they, that they'll face as opponents through the movie. There was a point where everything was basically set up and ready to go, but they had to go and get the blessing of major league baseball to use all of the logos and team names. And that was for David Ward. That was the nervous point. That was the, the really the, the, the hinge of this whole thing. If they'd gone in there and Major League Baseball looks at this script with all the language and all these kind of raunchy storylines, and they say, no, you can't do it. Or, in a way, even worse, if they just said, well, okay, you can do it, but it can't be the Cleveland Indians. You're going to have to make up a team and have it be a fictional team uh, playing other Major League teams. For David Ward, that would have been a deal breaker. It had to be Cleveland. It had to be the Indians. It was never, it was never intended to be just write this goofy comedy about a bad baseball team and then figure out what team it is later. I think a lot of sports movies that use actual teams feel like that. It's just like, well, we'll just insert the team later. It doesn't even matter what the team is. For David Ward, it had to be Cleveland. He's a Cleveland guy. He grew up an Indians fan. He knew the history. He knew how long suffering that city had been, how those fans had been through so much over at that time, over 35 years. And it had to be, it was baked into that story. All the Cleveland details, all of that stuff was a part of the story. And you couldn't just swap it out with, say, the Decatur Buffaloes. You couldn't just have it be a fake team and, and have that story work for him. So he'd have walked away. So that worked out. Major League Baseball said, that's fine, go ahead and do it. And even that, like in talking, and they, they, they go into this in the book, that it, were that script to show up today at Major League Baseball's office, that, that they would never approve it. They Or they would require drastic changes. There's just way too much. There's so much corporate control now. Major League Baseball has its own division, basically, of 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 its corporate structure that deals with licensing rights and move film and TV and, and this sort of thing. Back then, it was literally just like they just kind of sent it to the office and it just passed around from desk to desk and people kind of looked at it randomly and said, OK, fine. The commissioner, Peter Uberoth at the time, even weighed in like that would never happen now. Um, and it, to say nothing of the overarching story of an owner wanting her team to lose so she could move it. Major League Baseball would never green light that story today. So it was really it's a very much a movie of its time and something I don't think we would ever see again. And uh, you just segue perfectly into my next point, and I, I don't know if you saw it, but ESPN.com wrote a piece uh, about a week or 10 days ago uh, about how Major League actually had a lot of foreshadowing to the future. And uh, one of it is about tanking, uh, about players like Serrano that are just one-dimensional, hit home runs, uh, owners moving teams. That's something that was really in vogue at that time. I mean, the Giants almost moved to Tampa. Um, you know, Miami and Oakland have had issues over the years. So, um, you know, all the things that happen in that movie that are pretty carnival when it comes out. Uh, if you look forward, Charlie Sheen playing this hard-throwing guy who can't find the strike zone. Throw a dart at the Major League rosters. Everybody's got a couple of guys like that uh, mm -hmm. that are coming out of the bullpen throwing 100, which at that point you're like, wow. So it's funny. They wouldn't like it, but maybe because a lot of this stuff, which was written in the early 80s, four or five years before it came out, this stuff is happening now. That's amazing to me. Yeah. Yeah. In in, in several ways. And, 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 and it's funny, too, that um, it probably an even more on the nose example was actually from Major League Two. There's a scene in Major League Two where um, at this point, Corbin Burnson had bought the team and was having financial problems and he's trying to get money any way he can. And, and they walk out onto the field for a game and they look out aghast at the outfield wall at all these like advertisements right. on the outfield wall. And it's played as a joke. It's like, oh, my God, this would never happen. And David Ward even said we got criticized for that. Like, oh, that would never happen. Yeah, let's look at let's look at outfield walls right now. It's covered with that stuff. So but you're right. Even the original was was really on the money in in making some of these predictions and not the least of which which i think was was also talked about a little bit in our article i know the book goes into it as well is that rachel phelps was basically the pioneer of moneyball that uh, in the original ending of the of the film which was which was swapped out it's revealed that she this she never had an evil plan. It was all a, she never wanted to move the team. This was all an orchestrated plan on her part to save the team 
this team was financially bankrupt. There was no money. And she knew that if they didn't turn it around in this one year, that she was going to have to sell it to someone who would move this team. So she had one year to, to try and salvage this thing. And so she went out and got all these, found all these players who had these sort of intrinsic qualities that other teams would not notice, you know, teams with big money who are only looking at the surface value of these players. She found being very, very whip smart, as it turns out about baseball, found all these players who who would fit right into this system, found the perfect manager to bring this all together, and then had this sort of Machiavellian, in a way, George Steinbrenner-ish uh, persona to, to, to have them all bind together against her. And it worked out brilliantly. Which, you know, in terms of a story is not terribly satisfying when you find out your villain was just pretending to be a villain. So and that's ultimately why they changed it from from test audience feedback. But I think at the same time, you take that away and, and you lose some of the satisfaction of the narrative of like, well, OK, wait, now, how did this happen? And that's a, that's a that's a cliche of a lot of sports movies where a bad team just suddenly becomes good because they want to. And, and that doesn't always ring true, even though it's kind of a trope of those movies. We just accept it. Uh, it doesn't always work that way, but yeah, and that, that's a, that's a classic example, maybe the classic example of how Major League was was really ahead of its time. And there again, why it resonates 30 years out because it sort of was in tune with where the game was going, and from that time in the late 80s up right up to now. And you're an Ohio guy, and obviously at that time the Indians were bad when that thing was uh, when that when it was when it came out, and the other foreshadowing is the the new ballpark the Indians became uh, and maybe if not for the Yankees would have been the best team in baseball in the mid to late nineties had a couple of really hard yeah. losses along the way. Uh, but a lot of fun. And, and I think that that team will be looked at. I know the MLB network did a, a look back on that a little bit differently. Now you go 20 somewhat years later, but it was interesting how the Indians were in trouble. The Browns would wind up leaving shortly thereafter you needed a new ballpark, and I'm not sure if this movie galvanized all that, but it's interesting it happened, and then a lot of the good stuff that saved, uh, you know, at least baseball at that time in Cleveland happened. And I actually go in at the very end of the book, I kind of float a theory that, I, that I've always believed from, from that time that really this movie played a role in saving the franchise. And it, and it sounds a little trite, but it, it, I truly to this day believe that it's true because you're exactly right. So the movie came out in the spring of 89, in the spring of 1990, just over a year later, uh, it was on the ballot in Cuyahoga County was a, a funding issue to build a new ballpark along with the downtown arena for the Cavs. But primarily it was about a, a downtown ballpark for the Indians who were still playing in old Cleveland stadium at that point. And there was no doubt about it. I mean, there was, there was no subtlety to this message. It was, if this, if this ballot issue goes down and we're not, we, we don't get the funding to build this new stadium, the Indians are gone. Like major league baseball, say Vincent was the commissioner at this time, came to town and basically said, that's what's happening. Like this, this is very simple. This is a moratorium on the Indians. And it was, it was a very, very close election. It was, I think 51, 48, that it just barely passed by a, by a few thousand votes. And I always felt that it had major league not come out when it did and sort of showed a couple of generations of Clevelanders who had not seen a winning Indians team. It had been at this point now 35 years since the team had even been in the postseason, and that you've gone through an entire generation of fans who had never seen this team good or entertaining or anything. And this here comes this movie that that shows this. So we instead of this grainy black and white footage of Lou Boudreaux and Larry Doby, here's a fun in-color version on your on your theater or at this, at this point on, on video and television of what a good Indians team would be, what it would be like if the Indians were fun and Cleveland got behind it. I really believe that that captured people's imagination to some extent and said, you know what, this is possible. This could be – the Indians might be worth saving because they people – there is enough – inherent love here deep down in the roots of Cleveland that, that they would support this team if it ever turned it around and maybe this stadium is the key to doing that. So there's no way to prove it. I mean, that's the best kind of theory, right? right? To, to float a theory that is that cannot be proven wrong. But I, I firmly believe, hypothetically, that had that movie not come out when it did, that uh, that, that valid issue might have gone another way and the Indians may not be in Cleveland today. And one of the, I mean, anybody who watches it could probably pick up on it, but one of the little dirty secrets is that it was actually the, the home ballpark was Milwaukee. That it, it, yeah. I think there was a number of reasons why they couldn't do it at the old Cleveland Stadium. Um, 
But, you know, even when I look back, that stadium, I'm sure that you have some fond memories being an Ohio guy and people have fond memories growing up, but so ill-suited for baseball at all. And, oh, yeah. Uh, so ill-suited for everything, fun, really, though. but yeah, especially baseball. Right. Yeah. Especially baseball, where it was located. Different time, totally different situation. Mm-hmm. But would have been fun if the only thing I guess missing would have been putting the movie in the actual ballpark. Does it take away at all? Do you think that it's better that he did it the way they did it with Milwaukee and doesn't really make a difference? It takes a little bit away. And that, and, and I think David Ward, it, it, he would have really liked it. I mean, that was always the plan, uh, that they wanted to shoot it in Cleveland, that they wanted to use that stadium. So I think I, even from his perspective, it's like, yeah, I really wish it could have been, and it does take something away. But I tell you what, if you're going to find a stand-in for Cleveland Stadium, you are going to be better than County Stadium. I mean, that is as close as you get. Obviously, longtime Cleveland fans look at that immediately. Oh, that's not that's not Cleveland Stadium, huh? but boy, that's awfully close. Like especially when you're looking from you know, if you were sitting in the bleachers at County Stadium, looking into the into the heart of the ballpark there, boy, that's awfully close. Same architect. Uh, architecture firm built both stadiums and, and they look very very similar so it was close enough as opposed to major league two where they're using camden yards with as cleveland stadium which is probably the funniest joke in that movie that's a that's a great point jonathan knight author of the book uh just a bit inside the making of the major league movie a couple of questions jonathan before i let you go uh for you uh going into this project you always don't know what you're going to get out of something like this. Obviously getting in front of all these celebrities is a big win for you, but were there one or two things that you came out of this that you did not expect things you learned, uh, things that made it different for you. I mean, I always like to hear from an author where you go in with expectations and a blueprint and just like a major league baseball game, you could script the bullpen. You could script the game by the fifth inning. You're throwing that in the trash. Uh, Did you have that moment throughout this project? And did you come away with anything that surprised you? Or change anything that you originally were going to do? I think there were a lot of uh, things that sort of evolved as I went through. I think ultimately, if I was surprised with the overall or where we wound up, it was that it turned out so much better than I thought. I mean, honestly, I was, as I said before, thinking, sort of resigning myself to, well, I'm not going to be able to talk to half the people that I want to talk to. They'll, they'll, they'll turn me down or will not be interested or, or won't be forthcoming or whatever. And that was absolutely not the case. So that was, that alone was just so surprised, so wonderfully surprising that everyone was willing to talk and I was able to connect all those dots and talk to everyone and, 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 and make that book even better than, than what I thought. So I think that it, I think in another way too, that, that made it better was, I, it, I was able to kind of expand and and the things that the stories that people told or back background that I was able to dig up kind of led into other ornaments I could hang on this Christmas tree. Like it, it just led in, it led into it wasn't just a here's how this movie was made and, and going through the, the day by day um stories of production or or where the how how the story came together but all the backstory and david ward's backstory and the real life examples some of the some of the them that we just talked about here a minute ago um it all these things able to kind of throw into this stew and 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 make it even better than than what i intended so it this is one of the rare cases where you're right and, and many times you you start out with this grand vision for whatever book you're writing and Little by little, you kind of got to whittle things down and take things out and compromise. And this was sort of the opposite. Like the, the more I went in to it and, and the more people I was able to talk to, the better it got, the grander it got. So that was that was a delightful surprise. First time that had ever happened to me with any of my books. Can you ever listen to Brewer's Highlights with uh, Bob Euchre and not think of Harry Doyle? No. <laughs> In I fact, can't. I I will I will sometimes turn them on just to listen to his voice because he's just wonderful. He's wonderful. Yeah, old old school uh, announcing. So there's rumors that they're gonna do uh, another major league, not the awful major league three that came out with the back to the minors, but maybe like a 20 years later or 30 years. I I don't know. I've heard you know different things. I know there's some issues, uh, you know, legal issues possibly holding it up. Your thoughts, will we see one more major league? And if we do, is it too much? And is it killing the uh, the good mojo here that this anniversary and this book and some of the things that have been talked about over the last year or so have uh, brought about? I think, well, it, it is true. I mean, there's a script that has been written. Gosh, it was written. It's been almost 10 years now. 
since that script is written. That was the original idea was to on the on the heels of remaking everything from the 80s and 90s or rebooting soft reboots of, of things from the 80s and 90s. Um, that the idea was, let's do this for Major League as well. So David Ward uh, was asked to and, and did write a script, which which I got to read and is wonderful. And it's exactly what you said. It's it's roughly 20 years later. It sort of brings the gang back together with a with a new twist in a way. The Indians are going down the stretch of a pennant race, and three of their key players all get hurt at the same time, and they quickly have to kind of throw this scattershot plan together to to get to the finish line and part of that the big part of that they bring in some new characters of course that are that are hysterical uh, but the big part of that is they bring Rick Vaughn back who has been out of the game now for all these years and they have to bring him back and he becomes sort of a a um, a teacher in a way if you can believe that sort of this wily veteran who has to teach the younger players uh, things how how the game is played and how to get the job done so that's the 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 basic premise of it and it's it's a really wonderful story um and for a while it looked like yeah cuz everybody wanted to do it again because of that that long time love that all of these actors have for the movie everyone was like yes and even talking with with all of them for the book we're like yes yeah, so totally I would co- totally come back for that like everyone loved the idea and for some of the reasons you just mentioned, it just it was tangled in typical Hollywood stuff. It just it just never quite saw the light of day. And we're at a point now where I think the window of opportunity for that has closed. I think just the age of the actors um, and, and a couple of other things that have happened, I think, have probably closed that window of opportunity to make this movie. That being said, I am fairly confident that we will see a reboot of Major League at some point. That's based on nothing. I don't have any inside information on that. I don't know that anything is specifically in the works, but I, knowing Hollywood as we do, they're not going to let a potential money-making project uh, lay, like a, a potential reboot that would make money and get some attention. So I, I can I can totally see sometime in the next five years or so that we'll see a, a reboot of Major League with all new actors and, and probably some cameos from the old guys popping in there. So we will see, I'm fairly confident, we will see Major League on the big screen again, even if it's not a technically a continuation of, of the same story. It'll be like Charlie Sheen popping in in Wall Street too, right? That's how it's going to be. Which is that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, maybe it'll be in the same universe, sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. Jonathan Knight, author of the book, uh, The Making of Major League, just a bit inside. Jonathan, pleasure to have you on. This is a fun book. Anyone who hasn't picked it up yet should. I know it's a weekend and you've been generous with your time. Thanks so much. Uh, Good luck throughout the year. I'm sure you'll have other opportunities to promote this and and be in touch. And we look forward to talking to you again. No, my pleasure, Mike. Thanks so much. That's uh, Jonathan Knight, author of the book, just a bit inside. The making a major league. Interesting stuff. You could, I could go on and, and talk about this forever. I just, it's a fun movie, and he's right. There's so much in this that, I mean, there's stuff that's foreshadowing to baseball today. The storyline, I didn't get into it. Maybe I should have asked him, you know, about Major League Two. I don't think it was as bad as everyone made it out to be. It was actually not as good, and maybe it's hard because it was four or five years later to to really do uh, a knockout job after that movie and, and what have you. But, um, anytime it's on cable, if I have the time, I'll probably finish it. And, and I never get bored of seeing the same lines over and over and over and over again. So a good way to let our hair down in the midst of the early parts of the baseball season on this Sunday, where there's no baseball till tonight. And I just realized it won't be till seven o'clock. So, uh, it's actually not eight o'clock. So it's not as bad as I said in the open. Maybe it'll be at 11 o'clock and instead of midnight. So anyway, let's take a quick break. Final thoughts. We wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. You may run like maze, but you hit like Yo, bartender. Jobu needs a refill. We should have gotten the live chicken. We should have gotten the live chicken. We should have gotten the live chicken. I have to wake up bats. As for bats, keep bats warm. We're out of towels, and I'm too old to go diving in the locker. This isn't the California Penal League, Vaughn. We're professionals here. Ricky Vaughn, Willie Hayes, I haven't heard of most of them. Mitchell Friedman? You put snot on the ball? You put snot on the ball? Forget about the curveball, Ricky. Give him the heater. Just a bit outside. 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 Just a bit outside.
All right, we're back, and great stuff by Jonathan Knight, author of the book, Just a Bit Inside, The Making of the Major League Movie. That audio clip you just heard, and if you go to sny.tv, you can watch the video, was a bunch of current Mets trying to, and the raspy voice was Todd Frazier that you heard, a bunch of current Mets, Keon Broxton, Brandon Nimmo, Noah Syndergaard, DeGrom, there was a bunch of guys in there, so if you go to sny.tv, you can check it out, trying to do the different lines from Major League, the movie, so I thought it'd be fun, let our hair down a little bit, it's early in the season, let's not get too crazy, I know everyone's panicked about the pitching rotation and the bullpen and... Uh, you know, the Mets are a player away from winning the National League. Just just calm down. I mean, you know, this is, I, I, as I said, I felt that this was a good team. I felt it was just as good as everybody else in the division that was a contender. I'm not sure they're exponentially better. Uh, they have holes. Those teams have holes. I know that there's a lot of scars from how things went down in 17 and 18 and how badly things went in 16 after the World Series. And it's been a tough 10 years despite the World Series appearance. So there's a lot of angst from Mets fans uh, who sometimes I feel still have some wounds from 07, 08, and 06 and all that. But this is uh, a, an interesting team. It's a good team. And I, and I encourage you. I, I mean, if I, I couldn't find it. But that clip with uh, Jeff McNeil talking to Gelbs, I mean, it's just a confidence. And, and look, McNeil now has the most hits over the span of his first, you know, what, 90 games or something like that, 75 games, 80 games, whatever it is in, in Mets history. And that's just an amazing feat. And he's, he's kind of a, uh, a synopsis of the kind of grinders and the kind of professionals you have on this team. And I think that's the difference. Will it yield to more wins? A division, we'll see. It's very early. But there's a lot of positive signs more than just Pete Alonso and his mammoth home runs. And you could tear down any team and, and go down to the metrics and say this is where the you know the issues are. They're hitting better against relievers and starters. They're, they're bullpen shaky, the fifth spot. Again, just take a deep breath, relax. Let's see where this Keuchel, Gio Gonzalez, all this stuff comes into play. The, the media, you know, Davidoff in the Post had an article earlier today. Mets got to sign Dallas Keuchel now. Take a step back because the second guessing will begin if they sign him, he stinks, and they lose a draft pick or they lose international money. you got to make sure that you've examined all the options and the best decision is made. And, and you know, and Brody Van Wagenen knows, but you know that the GM you have now is very keyed in to what the markets are. And if it's about spending extra money and, and not going over the luxury tax – I think the uh, I think he has the ability to get the Wilpons to open the wallets. He's done it so far, and you don't even have Lowry back yet. The offense is going to get better, and I know that's not the problem right now, but you're going to have stretches where guys are going to slump. So having a Lowry, having Frazier defensively, I think is going to help at third base. I think there's a lot of good stuff to come. So let's not get doom and gloom. Degrom doesn't have a dominant outing today. Let's not get doom and gloom. Let's just realize this is another one in 162 games, and things are off to a good start. This is a solid team, a lot to be excited about, a lot a lot of fun stuff happening, and that makes this podcast even better. Hope you enjoyed the, uh, the, the segment with Jonathan Knight. You can check out his book, Just a Bit Inside, the making of the Major League movie. Go to his website. Uh, it's uh, jonathannightwriter.com. Knight as in K, not Knight as in Knight. Of course, I want to thank the good folks over at metsmorizedonline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy Sunday Night Baseball. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Take care, everybody.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.